0: The scripture reading for today that's taken in connection with our psalm is 1 Samuel chapter 22, the verses 1 to 5. As we continue to work our way through these prayers of David during his his times of difficulty, during his wanderings, we have reached Psalm 63. And this is during his time in the wilderness of Judah. So we'll come to 1 Samuel 22, the verses 1 to 5. David has just fled from the court of King Achish who had wanted to seize the opportunity to kill him until he was convinced that David was a madman because of the way that David acted. And then we come to 1 Samuel 22. David, therefore, departed from there And escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And so he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and mother come here with you, so I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed. And went into the forest of Hereth. It's at this time that David has disappeared into the land of Judah, or the wilderness of Judah, as you find it in some translations as well. And we reach Psalm 63 here today, which is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I'll lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, today more than ever, our country is a dry and thirsty land, a parched land crying out for water. In the past few weeks, if you've been following the news, you may have noticed how all of the major cities of our neighbor to the south of us have been rocked by protests and by riots. Riots triggered by an injustice but turning into so much more. Police stations going up in flames, people beaten in the streets, hundreds of stores looted and torched, and millions of people across the nation placed under curfew. New York City, for the first time since World War II, placed under curfew. And it wasn't just in the United States either. This violence has overflowed to Toronto and Montreal as well, and demonstrations, though much more peaceful in comparison, have been rising up across our country. And there's something that we can see behind all of this. There is a thirst for something. Humanity is crying out in a dry and thirsty land thirsting for justice and righteousness, although they don't necessarily know it, thirsting for God. Because they are crying out for a peace that can only truly be ushered in as the kingdom of God advances. A peace that can only come as true justice flows from the hearts of those who are in authority transformed by the touch of the kingdom of God in their dealings with those who are under their care. A peace that can only come as hatred and racism and tribalism, among other things, are destroyed under a love that unites men and women of every background, seeing them as created in the image of God. A peace that can only come as true humility and forgiveness rise up from a people that are transformed by the touch of the kingdom of God. Essentially a peace that can only come as people are united under the advancing rule of the prince of peace. It's with something similar in mind that David writes our psalm today. He too has been faced with difficulty and with hardship, fleeing from place to place, and ending up for a time in the wilderness now of Judah, having left his family behind in Moab, with uh, likely with family, or due to family connections there from his great-great-grandmother Ruth. And now he is wandering. He is thirsting. He is looking for a peace, a peace that only comes when he looks in one direction and one direction alone, crying out to God, oh God, you are my God. You know, we'll see first of all how he looks at God as the one whom I seek, second, what I seek from him, and third, we'll see the rejoicing that follows the seeker. The main driving point of this psalm today is what is humanity looking for in a dry and weary land? Now, David, at this point in time, is running. He is on the run from Saul. There have been some who have suggested at this point that this isn't Uh, during his time on the run with Saul, but it's during his time when he was on the run from Absalom. And they look at verse 11, and they point to that reference of him as king there, and they see that as the reason why. They believe that he wouldn't have referred to himself as king during this time. But what you have to remember is that just prior to this, when David was first on the run he had just fled from Saul to Samuel at Ramah. And while he was there, he would have had the opportunity to speak with Samuel and to ask for advice from Samuel and to be strengthened through Samuel. Samuel was, after all, the one who had anointed him as king. And he would have strengthened him in this promise. He would have reminded him of the goodness and the grace of the Lord and of the Lord's dedication to his promises. That David was indeed anointed as king. We can also see in the second place there that Absalom, when David was fleeing from Absalom, he didn't spend any length of time in the wilderness of Judah as he did during his time fleeing from Saul. Now, when David is here in the wilderness of Judah, it is indeed a a parched and weary land, this region that he's in. The place that is being spoken of in this psalm is a place that you will find on the west side of the Dead Sea. If you were to look at a map of Israel, you would see the Sea of Galilee to the north and then running down from there the Jordan River, and then underneath that you would have the Dead Sea. And on the west side of the Dead Sea, you had a place that was in the shadow of the mountain. The winds in these days would, for the most part, be coming off of the Mediterranean, bearing lots of water. And as the clouds moved in from the water and they would be rising up, then they would loose their load of rain on the land in the shefla, in the foothills that are leading up to these mountains. And then they would raise up and then they would pass over the mountains. And as the air settled down again, They would have nothing left to drop. And this shadow of the mountain was a dry and weary place. It was a land of jackals. It was a land of thirst. It was a land of uncertainty and of death. Thirst would have been one thing that was very much on David's mind as he's traveling through this place. Have you boys and girls ever experienced that? Probably recently as you've come in from a hot day, you may remember the thirst that can grab you as you see a nice fresh glass of water that mom has in her hand. And what's the first thing that jumps into your mind as she's giving it to you? It's that I want to drink this down as fast as I can. I want to enjoy this. I'm thirsting for this. Well, this was something that David saw as well as he's in his hot, dry, and dusty place, as he's listening to the calls of jackals in the distance, as he's resting. He sees this as a picture of his own spiritual weariness. It's not just a thirst for something physical, a thirst for water itself that is plaguing him, but he sees this as a picture his own weariness is a picture of his desire to be before God. God, you are my God. Earnest, early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This thirst is made even worse by the absence that he has. The fact that he's away, he is unable to come into the sanctuary. He is unable to come where the temple, where the tabernacle of God has been set up to experience the sacrifices and the blessings that are poured out there. Going back to you boys and girls, as as you are coming in, imagine if your mom had said, You can't have this water just yet. And you're just sitting there and you're hot and you're dry and all you can see is that water and all you can think about is that water and you just want to get it down, but you can't. This is the picture that David finds himself in. There are some among us who can maybe relate to this as well. Because of this whole virus, we are limited in the way that we are to be able to get together. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we read about how the people of God are living stones, being placed together in a sanctuary, being placed together as the temple of God, fitted together in place. When we are together, we really feel that sense of unity, But when we are separate from each other, then we feel that sense of longing to be together, to be joined together in worship, united together in worship before God. This is the kind of yearning that's in the heart of David right now. And yet, despite the fact that that he is unable to get together with the people of God, despite the fact that he is unable to worship God, it still doesn't stop him from confessing, Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. God. There are thousands of gods that are around, thousands of gods in the various lands that he has gone to. He has spent time in Philistia at this point in time and they have their whole group of gods and then he spent time in Moab and they have their own group of gods and during this time it would have been very easy for David feeling this thirst to try satisfy his thirst elsewhere. It would have been very easy for him to to try to find something to fill the gap there. And for us who are separated from each other in worship, for us who are only able to, to worship via a screen and we don't always feel that sense of unity, the same temptations can be there as we go around in the world from one place to another to another to, uh, to look at these different things that are not springs of water, that truly can't satisfy, and to be tempted by them, to try find or fill in these other things. But David, during this time, reminds himself again of where his loyalty lies, of where his trust lies. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. God is his God. And he will seek him early in the morning. You might see in other Bible translations where it says, earnestly I seek you. And it's this idea of at the break of dawn, the first thing he does when he rises up, he has that earnestness in his heart. His whole heart goes after God immediately, even though he is absent from the sanctuary. Despite Saul's actions and despite Satan's evil, he says in verse 8, my soul follows close behind you there's an interesting thing that we find there this word that uses for my soul following close behind you is the word that we find same word that we find in genesis 2 verse 29 which is my uh, which is to cleave it says there when a husband leaves his father's household he will cleave to his wife He will be joined together with his wife and the two will become one flesh. And this is the picture that he's giving there, that he will hold to God in a way that cannot be separated, in a way in which nothing can and nothing ought to come between. How is he able to to make such a profession? Well, the second part of verse 8. Your right hand upholds me. And so God is the one whom he seeks. God is the one whom he meditates on. Both early, verse 1, and in the night watches, verse 6. God is the one that David looks to in a dry and weary land. And this brings us to our second point. So David, at this point, is looking to God. But the question that might rise up in your mind is, what is he looking for? Especially when he's sitting in the darkness of the night, when he is lying back on his bed and he's looking perhaps over above his head at the stars in the night sky overhead. What is he looking for? His greatest desire is to be in the sanctuary. His greatest desire is to be able to witness everything that takes place there. But why? The reason that he feels such sorrow, such thirst when he's apart from the sanctuary, is because there in the sanctuary, there in the tabernacle, he sees the means of grace that God has given to his people. The means of grace. He is able to enter into the sanctuary and he's able to see the bull lying on the altar and see the flames rising up to heaven as the burnt offering representing the sins of being washed away, the sins of the people being cleansed and atoned for rises up to heaven. He is able to smell from a distance the incense that rises up within the holy place of the tabernacle where the priests are ministering, assuring the people through that symbol that the prayers of the people are rising up. To heaven, And that God is there and he is hearing the prayers, the prayers that people are rising up and filling the sanctuary and even filling the most holy place beyond. That assurance that he's given by those physical signs is something that's very dear to David's heart. It's dear to his heart because of what we see as the heart and soul of his psalm, verse 3 because your loving-kindness is better than life. It's that word loving-kindness which is pictured in all of the sacrifices, in all of the ceremonies that, that God gives, in everything that takes place there. That is the image that's shown to the people there. The word for loving-kindness here is the Hebrew word cheset, And it's a Hebrew word that's translated in many different ways. Loving kindness being one of the primary ones. But what does it actually mean? What is David looking for that's pictured? The relationship that God has with his people is called the covenant. God has established a covenant as a legal and binding thing between himself and his people. It shows that he will be his people's God and they will be his people. But chesed, or loving kindness, is how to live within that relationship. Covenant is the relationship itself and this chesed, this loving kindness, is how to live within that. You see this rising up within the lifetime of David himself when he's dealing with Jonathan. He makes A covenant with Jonathan when Jonathan's the one that's in the position of authority, when Jonathan's the one who has the uh, position of strength, and Jonathan promises his love towards David. Later, when David heads out into the land and he's driven out by Saul, Jonathan can see in his mind the direction that God is taking David, and he knows that David will one day be king. He confesses this himself to David. And so Jonathan speaks to David, and he makes David promise in a covenant to him to show him this love, to show him this loyalty, and not just him, but also his descendants. And if you are to look later in David's life, you see that David does indeed carry this out when he's dealing with Mephibosheth, who is descended from the line of Jonathan. This is similar also to when God is speaking to Israel, the nation as a whole. When they are entering into the land for the first time, they come out of exile from Egypt and they enter into the land, God, because of the relationship that he has made with his own people, says to his people, When you come into the land, make no covenant with the nations around and show no mercy to them. Now, God isn't calling his people to be merciless in this situation, but it's that very same word that is being used there. Chesed, or the loving kindness, that, that mercy, that way that you live within a relationship with that other person of the covenant. He is saying I am using you as an instrument to punish the people of the land. And so if I am using you in this way, and I have covenanted with you, I do not want you to pollute this covenant by having this same loving kindness shown to people that I do not have loving kindness for, but people who I am punishing for their wickedness, driving out of the land for that reason." So that's what's at the heart of this word, chesed, this word loving kindness that David is speaking of here. This is the heart of the covenant, the way you live within the covenant. This is translated in different places as as mercy, grace, as one who lives this way is, is faithful, loyal, or true. It's kind of difficult to have an English word that sums all of this up, which is why we have all of these other words. Possibly the closest English word that we have is one that we no longer use today. When it speaks about leal lordship, L-E-A-L, and that's basically when somebody is taken and swears a vow to follow his his liege lord in the in the uh, Middle Ages, when he would follow and he would obey, but he wouldn't just have this person as his leal lord, but it would be leal love. That he shows to this person. This love, this faithfulness, this loyalty, this way that he is expected to live within the framework of that relationship. But this isn't something that comes from a subordinate, from someone who's underneath to someone who's in authority. What David is experiencing here is what God Himself gives to those who are under his care. This mercy, this grace, what makes him faithful, loyal, and true. This is what David finds at the sanctuary. This is the image that he sees. This is what he thirsts for. When we look later on in the Old Testament, we can see another picture that's connected to this. There is a river of water in Ezekiel 47. A river of water that flows down from the temple to quench the thirst of the nation. This stream which quenches the thirst of the people of God. This is the Chesetz. This is that loving kindness that flows from God to his people. This is what is better than life for him. This is what he thirsts for. This is what, when he receives it, what causes him to bless God while he lives, to lift up his hands in his name, to pray to him. This is what satisfies his soul and marrow, his soul as if he was satisfied with food, with the richest of food. This is what gives him peace when he remembers on his bed, when he meditates in him in the watches of the night. This is what gives him safety in verses 7 and 8. When he looks to the Lord, peace and strength. This is better than life for him. For us, we, ourselves, when we look at this, we are pointed to the one who is the source of that stream of water that is flowing down from the temple. For the source, Jesus is the spring of living water. Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. When we are crying out for water in a dry and thirsty land, we look for this loving kindness of God We look for the one to whom the images, the one to whom the means of grace point to. In the Old Testament, it was the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law that pointed as shadows to Jesus Christ. Now in the New Testament era, as we take part in the sacraments, we see this same thing that's pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus, the spring of living water. Jesus, the one who is better than life. What this land is looking for as it's living under riots and under rage and under fire and flame is not something that it will find as it compounds pain upon pain. It's not something that it'll find as anger and rage is transferred to the next generation It passes on pain and anger to the next generation, which passes it on again to the next generation. But this just leads to further burning thirst, further injustice, further inequity. What our land is thirsting for is something that can only be found in Christ. As the kingdom advances, as this keset, this loving kindness continues to flow out from the throne of God, only then can peace follow. As we are going through this, we are reminded again, loved ones, what are you looking for? And where and how do you hope to find it? David again points our eyes to the God of the covenant and to the one who gives us that peace to live for. And then he points us to the joy that follows the seeker as our conclusion. And that is something we find in verse 11. The king shall rejoice. Here we can see something beautiful David has taken the promises and the encouragement of Samuel to heart. God had chosen David as his king. God had anointed David as his king through Samuel. And David was able to stand secure and confident now. Although he was moved this way and that, he could rest and trust on that heset, on that loving kindness of the Lord. That God had not just made a covenant with him, but that God was living and would live in that way with him, within the framework of the covenant. He would show him that heset, that loving kindness, that mercy and that loyalty. David is taking hold of those promises that are given him in faith. And then he confesses that everybody who swears by him, that is, everybody who swears by God, shall glory. Everybody who shares in being a faithful follower of the covenant will rejoice together with the king, will rejoice together with David, because he is sure that this peace will be found, that this peace will come. Those who seek to destroy, verse 9 will not succeed. Here David gives a picture of jackals again. Jackals after a battle. Jackals are are scavengers in the Middle East. And when you fought a battle, then the losing side would quite often either only be able to hastily bury their dead or maybe even leave them out on the battlefield. And after that, the jackals would come in. And it was a, a, a picture of great shame, of great dishonor, and of great disgrace to leave the bodies to the jackals. But this is what those who were seeking David wished upon his head. This is what they desired for him, that he would face this destruction. But here he rests in the assurance that God will turn it on their own heads. Their injustice and their unrighteousness towards him won't prevail. It won't win out. And this is something for us to remember today as well. That although we see so much turmoil and difficulty, it won't prevail We continue to work and we continue to rely on God as God ushers his kingdom into this world. We continue to pursue justice and righteousness and we continue to rest on, even when justice and righteousness is not shown to us, as David experiences here, we continue to rest on the promise and the love of God as he shows his mercy and grace towards us for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is something, however, that will advance in this world as the kingdom of God goes out. And this is something that he also uses us as believers as instruments to advance in this world. And this is why we should be eager for these things. Eager to bring others under the umbrella of God's covenant and under the umbrella of God's loving-kindness, God's justice and God's mercy, God's grace. Eager to show this to others who are within that, without prejudice. But this isn't something that will happen perfectly in this world. It can be the protest. Well, that is true. But as we taste it in part here, and as God's kingdom advances, even in full, we know that God's loving kindness, that God's chesed, that God's kingdom will prevail in eternity. There's a time when the hatred and the evil that drives the horrific actions that we see around the world right now, not just in not just in burning and in murders down south and in, uh, in injustice here, even in our home country, but when the evil that drives all of that, that is driven by seeds that are planted by the devil who promises peace and claims he looks for justice, but actually stirs up war and strife by perpetuating violence, by continuing violence and leaving violence in its wake for those who have been acted on with violence. This will come to an end and he'll be destroyed. And there will be a spring that comes from the throne. And we read in the book of Revelation how this spring will come from the throne and a river will flow out to all nations. As this comes to an end, people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation will be able to have their thirst satisfied in the streams of water that come from the living God. In the loving kindness and in the mercy. David here is a picture again of Jesus Christ. The king shall rejoice. This king. Our king shall be brought to rejoicing at the end of days when the Father turns over the last of the sheep in his kingdom to him. When this covenant, loyalty, and loving kindness will be the only thing that remains in this world in the way that people interact with each other, people interact with God, and God interacts with his people. And it's these promises that we take hold of. Just as David was able to take hold of these promises in faith as towards his own kingship, we can take hold of the promises that we are given about Christ's kingship in faith and look for when peace, justice, and righteousness will flow like a river and there will be no more thirsting. The desert will become like a spring of water. And everyone who is a faithful follower of the covenant, everyone who has been called by God, will rejoice with him because this peace will be found. Amen.